Greetings in Jesus' name. Good to be here and good to be instructed like we have already this morning. We who are completely dependent, and that's actually, uh, you look at Belshazzar when he uh, knew about King Nebuchadnezzar, his father, or his grandfather, depending how you put that, he knew of the humiliation of Nebuchadnezzar, and he still lifted himself up. And Daniel told him, your very breath is in the hand of God. Our very breath is in the hand of God. We have to have nothing to boast for. Why art thou proud, O man or O woman? Someone has said, uh, and this is probably when someone is overtly proud, it's pride is the, is the thing that makes everybody sick but the person who has it. But that's usually when it's pretty obvious. Most of us are better at hiding it. As far as the children's lesson, I haven't seen that trap for decades. That was the trap my mom had. You have to know my mom to know she hated mice. So you had a trap that was good for one mouse, and you had a trap that was good for four mice. That was the trap for her. So, yeah, that's a... The mice did not know what that trap was, but we did. Why don't we just pause for a word of prayer at this time before we go on. Lord, do thank you, Lord, for this morning. It's beautiful. Lord's day you have given to us. That we can be here together and unmolested from the outside world. Lord, trust that we're unmolested in our hearts. And we can rest in you and we can open up your word. And can we allow your spirit to sanctify us and your word to cleanse us. I pray, Lord, you would do that this morning for all of us. You would guide us, give us direction, and nurture us. I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Two weeks ago, I had a message titled Erroneous Kingdom Teaching, and that was in response to what was going on locally, um, that heretical movement called the New Apostolic Reformation and how it's having inroads locally among some of the Anabaptist people. It even... um, had inroads in Harmony, where one of the deacons was uh, impacted by it and his family. And, of course, it came into real view when a number of Amish and Mennonites publicly shared the stage down in Washington, D.C. with Lance Walnew, the man who coined uh, the term the Seven Mountains Mandate. And it has its inroads in certain organizations locally. So we talked about that last time. And then Tim Seitz's response to that uh, 
YouTube where it de- depicted them down in D.C. He said, would to God the church could provide clear enough teaching and take their stands on the right issues in such a way that these people would understand that they are neither Anabaptists nor standing up for the kingdom of God. So this is the second message in response to that statement. After these messages, I want you to be able to sniff out those errant beliefs. In other words, you will aware that there's a trap there. But not only that, but you also be able to clearly embrace clear godly kingdom teaching. Embrace and defend the true kingdom of God. Now, just a little bit of review. I don't know if everybody was here last time, so it'll be very, very brief. I had said that we've been down this road before. 25 years ago, there was a Christian reconstructionist movement that was going strong and swept some of my fellow believers along with it. Today, it is another movement doing the same thing. And as different as these two movements are on the surface, underneath it had the same impulse, the same dominionist impulse. And uh, had three points, main points. First is their structure of the NAR. They believe that God's intended form of church governance is modern-day apostles and prophets holding leadership over evangelists, pastors, and teachers. They believe God has, in the last days, restored the apostles and prophets' office. So it is an ultra-charismatic signs and wonders revival movement. Number two is the NAR is dominionist at its core. That's the idea that Christians are to take dominion of the earth. They are to take charge. They are to rise up in the areas of power in the government. And then the Seven Mountains mandate adds all segments of society. And number three is the post-millennial viewpoint. The post-millennial is an interpretation, uh, eschatological interpretation, that the Lord Jesus Christ will come back after the church has had a period of um, a golden era. Uh, 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 The Christian church has had a period of dominance and prosperity. In other words, one, the Christian religion has grown and taken over the whole world and all under Christian dominion, then the Lord Jesus will come back and take his place. That's the post-millennial viewpoint. Basically, they believe that the world is going to get better and better in the end times. And eventually, the entire world becomes Christianized. After that happens, Christ will return. That is the nutshell of the erroneous kingdom teaching that I had last time. An unbiblical religious movement. But it has a huge following and it's growing and it has momentum. However, there is one point I completely forgot in the last message about what's in this movement. And so I'm going to give this last point a part of this message before we go into the other. 
And I was planning to do it. I had it on my list to bring it in. And I, in the whole structure, I actually overlooked it. So, it is called a new translation of the Bible called the Passion Translation. That translation isn't complete. It's not done yet, but the entire New Testament is done. And then the, the, the author is going through book by book of the Old Testament. Brian Simmons is the, is the uh, one who is actually writing it, translating it. And it's promoted this way. He said this is right out of their website, or, or maybe it's on the back of their Bible. He said, you will encounter the heart of God. The passion translation is a heart level translation that expresses God's fiery heart of love to this generation, merging the emotion and heart changing truth of God's word. God longs to have his word expressed in every language in a way that unlocks the passion of his heart. This translation will trigger inside every reader an overwhelming response to the truths of the Bible, unfolding the deep mysteries of the scripture in the love language of God, the language of the heart. I say, wow, give me one of them. That sounds good. A language of the heart. I had not heard about this translation until I was asked about it some months ago, and then I read it, parts of it, and it is very gripping. It is actually a very feel-good, readable translation. Some more promotion. The purpose of the Passion Translation is to reintroduce the passion and fire of the Bible to the English reader. It doesn't merely convey the literal meaning of words. It expresses God's passion for people and his world by translating the original life-changing message of God's word for modern readers. Now here I found a little bit of a question. And I wonder if you caught that. It doesn't merely convey the literal meaning of the words. You see a possible, possible problem with that. When you translate something from one language to another, what what is actually a goal? <laughs> it is to translate accurately, a literal meaning, right? It's a little bit of a question here. And then to translating the original life-changing message of God's word for modern readings. So, so, we're not getting the literal meaning of the word, that's not too good, and we're translating the original message into something else that we like better today. That's what I get out of that. And so, if you do a little bit of study here, that is actually what you find. Brian Simmons is the sole translator. Now, he's, he's vocal. He's, he's vocal in how, why he's doing this translation. And his description of why and how he is doing this translation actually gives us insights 
in how this hyper-charismatic miracle signs and wonder movements operates. In other words, I forgot to tell you, Brian Simmons is an NAR man. He's in, that, in, he's in this movement. He's one of their men. And, and how did this movement work? Well, he, he, uh, he actually has a very good description, probably better than I could even come up with. So when Brian was asked how he was inspired to do this translation, he said, Jesus entered into my room one night and commissioned me to do this translation. Jesus breathed on me and promised he would help me do it and, and give me secrets of the Bible for these last days awakening. And that was the beginning of the project. So he had a, a, a vision, an experience with Jesus personally. Then he was asked, well, how did you get the name Passion, Passion Bible? And he said, well, some years ago, I saw an angel named Passion in a church meeting I was at. And God told me, not audibly, he said, that that angel is going to be with your ministry. It's the angel of Passion. Jesus told me he would give me secrets of the Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic languages. He would give me virtual downloads from heaven. So there are secrets. According to him, there are secrets that are hidden in all of history. But now he's going to get some secrets that were not revealed before. That's what he said. And going to get virtual downloads. You're going to get secrets. You're going to have insights that, that were hidden. And so as you see that, first of all, this is not, not, not a normal translation anymore. It, this translation, he says, has come supernaturally. Now, so he believes he received a supernatural commission and supernatural insights to reveal the heart of God to modern people. Now, if that is true, we ought to scrap all our Bibles wholesale and get it. If that is true, we ought to do that. And if it's not true, then we ought to not read it. Not accept it. In truth, here is actually the the uh, not uh, my uh, evaluation of it. <laughs> the Passion Translation is a reworded and rewritten Bible, covertly intended to support a particular strain of theology. If this Bible were were marketed as a commentary, it would still be a problem because it has someone's theology in it. But it's, it's, it's promoted as a translation, not even a paraphrase. So it's, it can't be called a translation. It can't be called a paraphrase. It can be called a commentary, but it's a, it's a bad commentary because it has, has the um, agenda in it. The trash, uh, it goes well beyond the idea of translation and it reimagines the Bible as one human author thinks it ought to be written. It not only reflects Simeon's NAR theology, but it appears to be deliberately written to promote 
it. Now, the Jehovah's Witnesses some years ago, I didn't study this up, but they actually came out with their own translations because the Bible, as it's written, is gets in the way of some of their her heresies, let's say it that way. So they wrote their own translation to, so they could change certain things, and that now they can have a Bible that fits their theology. Now the NAR has a translation that is purposefully written with the movement's buzzwords and phrases incorporated into the text and legitimizes their emphasis and their errors. Now they have preaching points right from their Bible. And I know they use certain buzzwords, uh, activate. Um, there's a number. Of, I didn't write them down. I can't remember what they are. And, and um, they are in, in, this, in, the, in that Bible uh, by, the, by the droves. I'm going to give you one example of how this is done. There will be hundreds, but there is one. You remember when Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness and he responded to the devil's temptation to turn the stones into bread. And Jesus said there in Matthew, and he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeded out of the mouth of God. The Passion has it translated, and he answered, The scriptures say, bread alone will not satisfy, but true life is found in every word that constantly goes forth from God's mouth. True life is found in every word that constantly goes forth from the mouth of God. What's changed there? Well, at least two. First of all, it says true life is found. That's not in the original. You could say, well, it's implied. And then the word constantly. And these people believe in modern day prophecies. They believe in ongoing revelation. And now they have a Bible who that promotes it. Every word that constantly goes out from the mouth of God. So you have prophecies and you have prophecies. And, and not only that, if you want true life, you've got to listen to those modern day prophecies. That's what it says. It's changed the scripture. Has it changed it into their ideology? The scripture say it and Jesus sanctioned it. Uh, just one more thing about Brian Simmons. He was in heaven and he saw a library one of the many visions he had and he saw John chapter 22 in that library if you know anything about John there's only 21 chapters in John he saw John 22 and the Lord told him you may not reveal that book but someday I'm going to give you John 22 so Hold on to your horses. You have more coming someday. Well, that was the... Um, okay, so let me just figure. It's unwise for us to use the Passion Translation, even as a commentary. 
or as a source to see how it brings the scripture out. <clears throat> because it's it's slanted and it has it's about 50% larger than the Bible because it just adds a lot of material that's not in God's word. And if we don't, and it's slanted, and you, if you, you just read it just towards the comments, if you don't see the slant, you actually may end up believing it. So do not recommend that at all. And maybe you didn't know it was available, and that's fine. So that was erroneous kingdom teaching. What do we believe is God's purpose for us as Christians? Why did Jesus leave us? Or what did Jesus leave us here to do? How do we relate to the society we are in the midst of? If we don't go and take dominion, how do we relate to it? What is the true kingdom of God? And so the title of the message today, What is a Kingdom Christian? Part 1. Gary Miller wrote a book titled Kingdom Focused Finances some years ago. And why do you think he used the word kingdom focused? Why didn't he say Christian focused or Jesus focused? Why did he use kingdom focused? I didn't ask him, so I don't know for sure. I want you to think a little bit. When I became a Christian decades ago, most of the people, 90% plus of the people in the United States were Christians. It was a wonderful time. There was hardly any crime. Fornication and adultery was almost unheard of. Most, most towns didn't have a police force. Um, Divorce, yeah, there weren't many bars. After all, 90% of the people were Christian. It was a wonderful time. A little bit of sarcasm here, right? Well, not 90% of the people are Christians, right? Even though 90% of the people called themselves Christians. So we used another designation back then. We were born-again Christians. That separates real Christians, someone who's had a, an experience an encounter with God from the nominal Christian, those who are in name only. Well, back in that day, about 40 to 45 percent of the of, a, of people in the United States were born again Christians, including former President Jimmy Carter, the first born again president that we had. Um, millions of people were born again under the. Um, Influence or under the evangelistic meetings of Billy Graham. So many people were born again. Now we tend to identify as Christian, kingdom Christians. Why? Are we Christians? Are we born again Christians? What is a kingdom Christian. And why would anyone want to identify themselves as a kingdom Christian? Kingdom focused finances. Kingdom Christian. 
did you know that your belief in the Bible has a great deal to do with what you get out of it? I'm sure you know that. It will determine greatly. How you view the Bible will determine greatly. If someone views the Bible as a flat book, uh, I'll tell a little bit later what a flat book is maybe, he will read the same verses, the same words as others do, but because he sees a continuation of the Old Testament into the New he will understand the same passage quite differently than someone who sees a major distinction between the covenant and between the testaments. And sometimes, not always, but sometimes the application to a verse will be the exact opposite because of that different starting at a different perspective. You see, we need to be aware of that when we are in discussion with someone and, we, and, and we're discussing the Bible and you're discussing with someone else about the scripture. If you don't go down to the framework assumptions, you probably will never agree with them. And you could use one example of a classic dispensationalist. A, cl- a classic dispensationalist is someone who believes that uh, God divided up the, the narrative of the of human narratives in different dispensations, a number of them, and so you can talk to this man about um, a particular scripture, and because of his belief system, he will tell you that passage applies to the millennium, and you will say it does not. And he will say it does. And you will say it does not. And you will not settle that based on that verse. Because we come at it from a different framework of understanding the scripture. So, back to the designation kingdom Christian. Kingdom Christianity is a particular system of belief. A belief about what Jesus came to earth to do and what he wants his people to do. When Jesus started his earthly ministry, he started by preaching. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And when he did that, he was merging right in with what John the Baptist was already doing. John the Baptist was already preaching. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Something new was coming. A new day was dawning. A new kingdom was being announced. The king had finally arrived, and a new entity was being established. That which was prophesied by the law and the prophets was finally occurring. Well, that's what all Christians believe, don't they? Well, it depends what you mean when you say something new is coming. Some Christians believe Jesus just simply re-explained and extended the Old Testament law. Others believe Jesus came to totally take the law away and we're now under grace. But kingdom Christians believe that Jesus 
came to bring in a new kingdom. Not to reshuffle the old one. This new kingdom has a new set of values, not opposed to the old, but as a replacement of it. Jesus replaces the Old Testament law. Well, you could go many different ways with it. You could say actually he he became the law. (laughs) And you could say that. But he actually did designate it and say what it means. So he came up with new new kingdom ethics. But our goal is to be like Jesus. So Jesus did away with the old administration, as it's often mentioned in Hebrews. And he initiated a new entity that is distinct from any prior era, including his chosen people, the Jews. And it's because of this persuasion that kingdom Christians diverge in belief and practice from other Christians who are not kingdom Christians. And those beliefs include, especially many people have the two kingdom concept, but kingdom Christians have an absolute concept of the two kingdom concept. The non-resistance, no remarriage, no jewelry, no force, no oath, that kind of thing. Instead, instead of that, it is an upside-down kingdom. As Donald Crable has a, bro- has a book called The Upside Down Kingdom, and he has a number of uh, intriguing chapter titles. An upside down kingdom is the opposite of what is normally the case, and the, some of his titles are um, Free Slaves, Luxurious Poverty, Lovable Enemies, Inside Outsiders. Successful failures. <laughs> this is a new era, a new dispensation, a new kingdom. We'll get to the scriptures here shortly. Here's a, here is a verse. I'll just read it. Luke 16, 16 says, The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, John's time, the kingdom of God, of God is preached, and every man presseth into it. And then John chapter 1, 15 to 17. This is a key verse, and this is a verse that I understand that the new, the, um, the early church used this verse a lot, especially in their conflict with the Jews. John chapter 1, verses 15 to 17. John bare witness of him, of Jesus, and cried, saying, This is he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness have all we received, and grace for grace. And here's the point. For for the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. There we see the distinction made between the law and what we now call the gospel. Law by Moses, grace and truth by Jesus. Now, what is grace and truth? Didn't Moses have it? Didn't Moses have grace and truth? If he did, what is different now? Now, we're not going to dissect this verse just to recognize there is a difference between the law of Moses and the grace and truth of Jesus Christ. 
Okay, now turn to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. This portion of Scripture is considered the core teachings of our Lord Jesus. It's the most widely quoted portion of Scripture by the early church fathers. It was the core of the early Anabaptist beliefs and practices. It's considered the constitution of kingdom Christians. You see, all we're talking about a kingdom. All nations have a constitution. And a constitution is, uh, when, you, when, you, when, when a nation forms a constitution, they try to craft or draft a constitution that reflects the values and goals of themselves as a people. As a people, there's values and there's goals. There's, there's these, these things that we hold dear, that are true, that are valuable, that we, that we want to, that we embrace. And, we, and so you, you, you form a constitution that, that brings that out. That is actually what, uh, what many feel that, like the Sermon on the Mount is. It's the constitution. So, we're not going to actually do much in the way of um, it probably be most in the next message where we go actually verse by verse in a number of things. But I thought it would be good. I think we have time to read most of chapter 5. And we're going to start at verse 17. And, and when we start at verse 17, we are missing. We are missing the very heart of the people that come into this kingdom, the blessed and so on and so on. But we're going to come to the, the starting at verse 17. That act, this, this section actually goes the whole way to, uh, I think, into, up into uh, chapter 7. If you think of a list of commands and direction, and it just goes on and on. But we're going to read just to the end of the chapter. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And, who shall, and whosoever shall say to his brother, Rekha, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there remember that thy brother hath ought against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way, first be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Agree with thine adversary quickly, while thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. 
Verily I say unto you, Thou shalt by no means come out hence till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, That whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her, hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And if thy right hand offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. It has been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you, that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery, and whosoever shall marry her that is divorced committeth adultery. Again ye have heard it hath been said by them of old time, Thou shalt not forswear thyself, but shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. But I say unto you, Swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Neither shalt thou swear by thy head, because thou canst not make one hair white or black. But let your communication be yea, yea, nay, nay, for whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. Ye have heard it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil. But whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn thou not away. Ye have heard it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. That ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven, for he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, what more do ye, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. That is considered the core of the Sermon on the Mount. And it's understood in a multitude of different multitude of different ways. Some of the key questions want to ask, what did Jesus mean when he said he did not come to destroy but to fulfill? What does that mean? He came to fulfill the law, not to destroy it. And what does he mean by the repetitive statements? It has been said, but I say unto you. You see, it's important for us to understand our underlying beliefs or the people we talk to and the preachers that we interact with or when we hear them. I remember some years ago when we were up at the, uh, when we were at the cabin, we went to a Baptist church and there was a visiting preacher there that morning. And he had an excellent message about the Apostle Paul, his second missionary journey, and his time in the Philippian jail when he was captured. It was a good message. It was a good challenge. It's how to 
about trusting God to lead us, even when you're in a difficult situation. Paul's preaching, he gets thrown into jail, and there they are. So a good message. He's also a 35-year veteran, army chaplain veteran, if I say it that way. He was a chaplain to the army for 35 years. He's not a kingdom Christian. So, Harvey MacArthur gave 12 different views of how the Sermon on the Mount has been and is interpreted. And I will abbreviate it to nine ways. I won't even get the full definition that he gives, but I'll give you nine different ways the sermon is understood. And then we need to judge which one we think is the way Jesus meant for his people to take it. Number one is the absolutist view. Absolutist view. This is the view that maintains that the sermon is to be understood in a literal way. And uh, Mac, MacArthur says, though some in this camp, such as Augustine's, allow for figures of speech, many do not. He says the Anabaptists did not allow for figures of speech. Number two is the modification view. Modifications are introduced into the sermon by just about every interpreter who is not an absolutist. And then he gives one example. And um, I didn't do an extreme amount of study about this point, but he says the insertion without a cause in the anger passage. If you're angry with your brother without a cause, that it is pretty well known understanding that without a cause has been put in there. It's not in the original. Now, I've not done a full study on that. I'm going to take that at face value at this point. I believe that is true. But the point is here. If you are angry with your brother, you are in danger. But as you put in without a cause, that's a modification. Now, have you ever been angry at somebody Without a cause. <laughs> if you have, you have been. <laughs> um, if you, if I have ten, I have ten reasons when I'm angry with someone. So, that's a modification view. Okay, number three is the hyperbole view. The hyperbole is the idea or the view that content that Jesus overstated his cause for to maybe to, for shock value to wake people up you know you just make an extreme statement president trump would be a good one for that but not our lord jesus so that's a hyperbole view that it, it was it was not meant to be taken literally it was just given as an overstatement to wake us up Number four is the attitudes, not acts view. This view places emphasis on the heart and the attitude behind the acts, even to the exclusion in some cases of the acts themselves. So it's the old, it's the old classic, it's, what in the, it's what's in the heart that counts. 
It's what's in the heart that matters. So in this, in this um, attitude, not acts view, you can actually kill your enemies if you are loving them while you're doing it. Number five is the double standard view. This is the common Roman Catholic view. They, they, um, this is the view that the councils of the Sermon on the Mount are made for the lay, are made for the priests. They're made for the church, the clergy, but for the laity, not for the laity. So they have a double standard. They have one standard for the clergy. So the clergy doesn't go to war. The clergy doesn't, you know, and there's another standard for the laity. It's meant to soften the blow because it's impossible to keep. Then number six is the two realms view. This is the dominant view espoused by Martin Luther. And the the essence of this view is that there are two spheres. One is the church and the other, or one is the spiritual and the other is the temporal, which basically means you have the church and then you have the government. So, the Christian is to apply the sermon in the spiritual realm within the church, but is to live by the standards of the law in the temporal or civil civic realm. And, and what that basically happens, you have two moralities, one for the church and then one for the rest of life. Number seven is the interim ethic view. This view teaches, it's a, it's a very view, that Jesus actually thought the end was very near, that the kingdom was going to come real soon. But then the cross came and he died. And so now it changed everything. And so the, it releases the apostles and the, uh, it releases everybody from just keeping the Sermon on the Mount because, well, Jesus was wrong. I suppose that could be uh, maybe a, a liberal viewpoint. Then you have the modern dispensationalist view. This view sees the sermon as relating to a future kingdom. In other words, there's a dispensation coming where it will be done, but it's not now. We're not in that dispensation. It's basically saying that Jesus offered the kingdom to the Jews, and the Jews rejected it. If you actually want to look a little bit of study, you go through, you go through Matthew, for one, and you take it, Matthew, the whole way up to chapter 13. And that's when there was a a decisive factor. (laughs) The Jews had fully rejected. And so after 13, now Jesus is offering it to the Gentiles. And so before chapter 13, you had the millennial kingdom. And in fact, they believed that the Sermon on the Mount is, is an absolutist, should be taken absolutist, but not now. And then number nine is the repentance view. This view is held primarily by some Lutheran and Reformed thinkers. They see the sermon as basically law in nature. The sermon is a law. And since you don't keep the law, its purpose is, like the law is, to bring you to Christ so that you can ask for forgiveness. You can repent and believe in Christ. It's meant to lead people to Christ. But this view can be sustained only when one sees repentance as an alternative to obedience. So, 
How should we read it? Which one of those nine views do you espouse? How did Jesus expect his audience to read it? What would the followers of Jesus who really obeyed him look like and act like? You see, this is very important. This, how we understand the Sermon on the Mount is, has an enormous, an enormous impact on how we live our lives out, how we operate in our churches, how we operate in society. It, it cannot be, it cannot be bypassed. So, what you think about the Sermon on the Mount reveals a lot about your faith. The church has varied a lot in its interpretation of the sermon, and the church has varied a lot on its belief and practice. So, are the teachings of Jesus in the sermon simply reaffirming the Old Testament law that was just obscured by the Pharisees? Or was Jesus... Now, this, this is actually, I, I'm looking here right now. I probably should have had this in the next message. I'll, I'll, I'll just skip this part because we're actually going to get into that. Is Jesus just clearing away the rubbish that's been accumulated around the law, or is he sweeping away the law as a standard and reinstating God's original intent for righteousness among his people on earth? Now that Jesus has come and has come and is accompanied by the Spirit, has a new age arrived? An age where Jesus has triumphed over Satan's reign and established his own kingdom righteousness. So a new era. Jesus came, he triumphed over Satan, and he established his kingdom. That is what kingdom Christians believe. And there are some reasons, and I'm just going to use one example in this message of why that is so. Let's go to the end of the sermon, if you still have your Bible. In chapter 7, the last two verses, And it came to pass, when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine. For he taught them as one having authority and not as describes. Now, if you ask most people, and if I would ask you, do you know the Sermon on the Mount? You would say, I know the Sermon on the Mount. The problem is we're a little bit too ho-hum about it. I know the Sermon on the Mount. What happened to the people? What was the response of the people that first heard the sermon. The people were astonished. (laughs) Thunderstruck is a word you could use for that word astonished. They were incredulous. They were surprised. They were startled. Now, why? Why was that? Was it the person of Jesus that caused that? Or was it the message of Jesus? Was it the the, the delivery? 
or was it the content? And I think it was both. It was both the king and his kingdom message that stunned the audience that day. And I first want to talk a little bit about his authority. He said he spoke as one having authority. If you remember the Old Testament prophets, what was the most common phrase that they used? Anybody know a common phrase they used before they said anything? It's in the scripture in the Old Testament 414 times. You can't miss it. Thus saith the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. But you don't see Jesus using that term one time. What did he say? He said, you have heard it been said. But then he said, I say unto you. That is distinctly different. This is not someone coming with a message. This is the messenger with the message. This is authority. This is authority in the first person. You cannot call Jesus a prophet. If, if, if you call him a prophet, then he was usurping authority. It's not someone sent with a message. So, in the Old Testament, you had a representative going up to the mountain, that mountain that was fire and smoke. And he got the law, and he came down, and the people got the law. They got the law through Moses. But now here we have the lawgiver coming in person. And so you have authority. You have the lawgiver. And only the lawgiver has authority to change the law. The, um, an ambassador in another country does not have authority to change the law unless it comes from, the, from that. But here comes the lawgiver, and he has authority to change things. Then, also they were astonished because of his message, his doctrine. His doctrine, his message, cut to the heart. We heard a little bit about the heart this morning, the deceitful heart that we have. The self-serving heart, the selfish heart. How well does a self-seeking, selfish, and a prideful heart mesh with what we heard about the kingdom this morning? about the Sermon on the Mount. It, it cuts open, it exposes our heart. If, if this is the way God wants his people to live, then my heart, if it's not in the right place, is no way close going to be able to do that. So this, they were astonished because of his authority and they were astonished because of his message. Because it cut their heart. It exposed every heart that there that day. And then the Lord Jesus laid out a foundation. 
a pathway of how his kingdom would function. And that's why the people were stunned and shocked and astonished. They had never heard anything like it, not even from John the Baptist, the greatest of the prophets. They had not heard a message like this. Did you ever, and I know some of you have, had a tractor and a wagon, and you back up a tractor and wagon? You know, there's a, there's a learning curve in learning how to do that because you actually have to turn counterintuitive to, to have that trailer or that wagon go the right way, you actually have to turn the opposite way. Well, actually, you want to use a trailer example as well. It's counterintuitive. And you must learn to go against your normal intuitive to back this thing up. It feels opposite of what you should do to do it right. It feels wrong. However, if you follow your natural feeling, you're just simply jackknife. So, you must go against your natural feeling and learn the art of backing. Sermon on the Mount and the parts that we read is largely teaching us reversed to our normal values. Turn this way, not that way. It's counterintuitive. But once we learn these principles, once we learn these principles and go counterintuitively against our natural heart, we will enjoy the blessings of the kingdom. The blessings of kingdom life. There's a rich, abundant life on the other side in God's kingdom. And so the Sermon on the Mount challenges a lot of assumptions. And that's all that I have time to cover today. What I would have maybe, yeah, I would to just go into the next point, which simply split it up. So I decided to stop right here. So the points I covered today is... Your belief about the Bible, how you view the Bible, will determine greatly your conviction and practice. The Sermon on the Mount is considered the constitution, the true values of kingdom Christians. This is in contrast to the various modifications introduced to make it less countercultural. And Jesus, as God in person, has the authority to change the law, so to speak, to establish a new entity, a kingdom that reflects his righteousness and values. It actually reflects him. (laughs) So then we plan, by God's grace, to have what is a kingdom Christian part two next time where we'll plan to go down into some more of those verses. So may God bless you. And... um, May we seek the Lord's kingdom.